0: Snap Production. I'm automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. In this episode, we're visiting someone's garage that's just a bit bigger than your average two-car lock-up. Well, a lot bigger, actually. We're inside the biggest garage you can get, an airplane hangar. I'm at Lake Macquarie Airport on the central coast, north of Sydney, which is home base for Matt Hall when he's not travelling around the world. Matt's a distinguished Australian pilot, a top gun, and our first representative in the Red Bull Air Race World Series. I have great admiration for people who make their passion their occupation, but For most, this realisation comes later in life. Not so for Matt,
1: which is all the more impressive. It struck me at a very young age actually that I'd go to uh, get all these uh, flying clubs and gliding clubs and I'd see all these old men that um, are out there on the weekend doing what they want and I realized they were living for the weekend they hated their Monday to Friday and lived for the weekend and I thought they've got it all the way the wrong way around you know why wouldn't you actually have a job that you, you can't wait for Monday so you can go and do your job again so that's what I've pursued in my life and it's uh, it's really worked out
0: you're a third generation pilot if memory serves me correctly so flying is in the bloodlines your grandfather flew in World War 2 is that
1: yeah, that's correct. Uh, yeah, my, uh, my granddad, he was a, a pilot in World War II. Um, he he didn't follow through with flying after the war, um, let his pilot's uh, ratings lapse. Um, but um, my dad then got his licence um, uh, as a teenager and uh, then I, I flew with him um, while I was growing up and I got my licence as a teenager. What planes can you recall them either talking about or actually seeing them fly in those, in those junior years for you? Yeah, well, my, my granddad, I never saw him fly an aircraft, but he used to talk about you know his training in uh, in Tiger Moths, and then uh, he was flying Avro Ansons. Uh, he was actually going on to uh, Beauforts um, with a plan to end up on Beaufighters when the war finished. Um, with my dad, uh, we spent a lot of time. Yeah, he, he's a general aviation pilot, so not a not a commercial pilot, but we spent a lot of time, you know, doing uh, towing gliders in uh, in old crop dusters and things like that. And um, and uh, yeah, that that's the grassroots flying. As really what I uh, what I got involved in with uh with my heritage.
0: So what are those early memories of flying in addition to that for you was was there a moment for Matt Hall when you saw something your dad was doing or perhaps others that you would you admired and you went this is this is for me I really want to pursue this.
1: Yeah there, there's a couple of things that uh came to my brain uh, early on so obviously I, I liked being around planes and um and, but I didn't really know anyone that that flew planes for a job um and then I went to um, an air show in um, in the mid '80s. Uh, so you know, I was probably 11, 12 years old. And um, here in Australia, here in Australia, at Williamtown actually. And um, and there there were there were two things that occurred there. There was um, I saw a guy called Frank Fry who was flying a um, an aerobatic plane, um, and he was doing an air show demonstration. And the things he did in the plane, I thought, wow, you know, look at that. That guy has got absolute control of that plane, um, and it doesn't really seem to matter where where the sky and the ground are. He just makes the plane do what he wants i thought imagine being able to do that and the other thing i saw was um the mirage and the hornet had just arrived in australia and now uh, they put on a demo and for me those those aircraft were like magical flying carpets i I, di- I couldn't even imagine that there's a pilot in those aircraft it was like these were these were science fiction machines and there was a robot inside them um, i couldn't yeah you know, it's just hard to believe there's somebody experiencing um, the flight in the fighter, um, and that that set forth a, a bit of a chain in my head of yeah being able to fly planes that uh, could could operate um, in what most people consider um, unrealistic flight envelopes, um, and being able to do it for a job in the military would be um, an amazing thing to do. We'll talk more about that in a moment, because the Hornet
0: played a significant part of your your early life. Your first solo flight, though, was before most of us even have a car license. I think you were 15 and in a glider, is
1: that right? Yeah, that's correct. I started my flying training when I was was 14, and I went solo at 15. and uh, my first solo was, uh, was pretty special, actually, because uh, my dad was, uh, you get towed up by um, a tow plane um, in, um, when you're in the glider. And, uh,
0: so did he take you
1: up? He took me up. So, yeah, we did a, uh, I did a, I didn't even know my solo was coming up, so I did a check flight with, uh, with an instructor. Um, you know, my dad towed me up on that one. Then I landed. And then the instructor said, "Stay in the glider. Um, you know, you're going solo." Uh, straight after I landed, and my dad taxied up in the in the plane. He's looking in there, going, "He looks like he's in there on his own." He says in the radio, "You solo." I'm like, "Yep." And then uh, yeah, my dad towed me up, and um, and after I leased the rope, he came and uh, flew along next to me. It was the first time my dad and I had been. Separate aircraft, um, both of us solo. It was quite amazing. Very cool. You get your aircraft pilot's license at age eighteen. What sort of things were you flying back then? Was it was it Cessnas? What kind of planes? Yeah, so um, I I continued to do my gliding because that was the um, the cheapest and also the youngest uh, aircraft you had to fly um i then uh my dad bought an ultralight and he taught me to fly that so then i had some power experience but that you know was flying with a little uh, lawnmower engine basically and uh, some fabric um and then um i started hang gliding because that um in newcastle it's an amazing spot for hang gliding so that's quite cheap as well because there's no fuel involved so i was doing a bit of that uh and then um as i was finishing school i was able to convert um those licences and hours um, into uh, pre-recognised experience uh, to get a um, what most people would consider your normal pilot's licence and uh, started flying Cessnas and um, uh, smaller aerobatic planes and also started... Um, with uh, the gliding company that um or the gliding club that i was already flying with and towing the gliders with uh, the um their crop old retired crop duster so at 18 years old i was actually flying quite a range of aircraft uh but doing it on the um on the cheap uh through you know using my contacts and using my experience
0: so some kids at that stage might be kind of supplementing their schooling by working at kmart or, or doing paper runs or whatever it might be am i right in saying that you were you were flying is that while you're still at school
1: yeah it was pretty funny actually, because uh, you know I'd, I'd go to school and um, yeah everyone's talking about hey know yeah, look at this cool uh, record I've just bought or yeah you know, I just bought a new record player or hey I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the uh, go to the beach on the weekend and uh, hang out and buy hamburgers and I'd be like I'm not spending a cent because um, yeah I've got to save every every dollar I can while I'm at school so I can go flying on the weekend so it was a different sort of lifestyle in that regard. Um, but, uh, you yeah, I'm a big believer that uh, there's, there's, no, um, there's no dream that's ever too big. you just got to find a way to make it happen.
0: So that dream then leads you or you start venturing toward um, a career in the, the military. And, mate, you, you achieve some remarkable things there. I mean, ultimately, Ducks of the Hornet and fighter combat courses, Fighter Pilot of the Year, uh, over
1: 1,500 hours in an F-A-18. What is that beast like to fly? Yeah it's a, it's a pretty cool plane you know as as I was saying earlier you um yeah you know, when when I was younger I was looking at it going surely there's not a human being in that cockpit because it just looks so out of control um you know and then the first time you get to fly you know I was um I was quite young and uh, and uh, you know the the power of the of the aircraft it's um you know people have seen you know, drag races between hornets and uh, f1 cars and everything and and while an f1 will uh, will accelerate a hornet off the mark the, the thing what a hornet that a hornet does is um, uh, when it go past through 300 knots which is you know about 550 kilometers an hour it's just starting to get its, uh, its stride and it, um, it actually gets more efficient at those at that speed so as you pass through 300 knots you get a kick in the back as it accelerates even harder and that's what actually um, yeah, messes with your brain because in every other form of uh, machinery um, in the world as you're accelerating you start accelerating and then the acceleration backs off uh, as as you're starting to approach your terminal velocity in cars and motorbikes and everything whereas with jets and rockets you actually accelerate harder the faster you go so um, it it just doesn't feel right and when you're not used to it it actually feels wrong it feels like something's going to go wrong because it's like it's like everything's losing control so it's um it's, a, it's an amazing plane you know to be able to point your nose straight up and climb to above airline above airline heights from on the ground level just vertically um you know to to see the things we've seen and uh, in you know fly, fly in formations with your you know, your best friends in the world is absolutely amazing career.
0: There's a level of preparation, serious level of preparation both mentally and physically in order to do that and, and you wear certain equipment that, that assists with the incredible G-forces that you're subjected to in those sort of moments, don't you?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, in the Hornets, uh, the Hornets are 7.5 G aircraft, I also flew F-15s which is a 9 G aircraft. Um, the average person passes out around Around about 4g uh, if they're not trained how to do it um, so we're trained to to stay conscious through a number of uh, breathing and straining techniques but we also wear uh, a g suit over the top of our um, our flying suit which uh, fills with uh, uh, compressed air basically and um, and uh, restricts blood flow in our legs uh, under G because uh, the reason you know people can pass out is the blood comes out of their head under the G and uh, pools in their lower limbs so if you've got this uh, this special pair of uh, of, of trousers that uh, blow up with high pressure air um, and re- restrict the blood flow on your legs, the blood's got nowhere to pool apart from in your upper body, and hopefully enough to keep you unconscious. Uh, and then on top of that, we're also wearing um, you know an oxygen mask to keep us um, to keep us alive at the high altitudes, um, a helmet-mounted sight so that we can uh, use our weapon systems. Uh, we're night vision goggles that is attached to our helmet as well, um, and then a survival vest that we wear. Um, not just in combat we wear it on every flight because if you eject over water you've got to be able to you know, survive and have all your location aids so you walk out to these fighters um, you know wearing a lot of gear um, and it's all designed to, uh, to keep you alive in a um, in you know what's really a hostile environment um, you know at 50,000 feet.
0: Was there a moment for you I mean let's let's just sort of recap that for a second. We're talking twin engines, supersonic, they're worth about twenty nine million US dollars or something at the at the you know the peak of their career there. Top speed, as you said, just under Mach two about or Mark two, about nineteen hundred Ks an hour. Was the young man who was spellbound up the road at Williamtown pinching himself when you finally got to fly one of those for the first time (laughs)
1: yeah for sure it was uh, it was one of those things you know so you're growing up you see top gun you're like man that's uh, i want to do that you end up on the hornet and you spend the first five years of your career looking over your shoulder wondering when they're going to figure it out that you'd actually do this for free and they're paying me to do it so you're sort of waiting for the bill to turn up you know like oh here's your bill for like 30 million bucks worth of flying um because it, it is, um, yeah you know, it, it's one of those things that I, I still can't believe they said, yeah, here's, a, here's your jet fighter. If we're even going to paint your name on the side of this 30 million buck uh, jet fighter and go and do as much flying as you can. It's like, really?
0: <laughs> also on the, the CV, um, uh, you know, Royal Australian Air Force Fighter Combat Top Gun Instructor, Ducks. Tell me, mate, that you weren't riding a motorbike to work with leather jacket and Ray-Bans and things like
1: that. Yeah, if I could have got away with that without my mates uh, giving me curry, I probably would have um, ridden the bike uh, to work. But (laughs) um, Yeah, it it is one of those things that, um, you know, when I saw Top Gun when I was a 15-year-old and you go, man, that's uh, uh, imagine people actually get to do that. Um, And then, you know, I set my sights on um, doing our own Top Gun uh, course and, um, you know, I was able to do well on it and actually became um, the chief instructor at our... A, a Top Gun school it, there's a little bit of um, a touch of ego in it but uh, the ego is really drummed out of military pilots very quickly because um, you, know, it, you know like that line in, uh, in Top Gun you know it's, uh, you can't have people ego writing uh, writing checks they can't cash because you know you're dealing with a lot of equipment and if anyone ever puts their ego ahead of um, you know a right decision, it's it's going to go horribly wrong very quickly. So um, yeah, it was it was pretty uh, cool to be, have the responsibility of being um, you know, in my twenties. I was uh, already a top gun instructor, um, and being able to carry that mantle um, you know, and represent Australia, um, yeah, not just within Australia, but also take that um, take that award of being a top gun instructor and uh, using that overseas, um, you know, for certain uh, certain items there as well.
0: You probably can't tell me specifics, but but there has been combat flying too. Made, hasn't there? In places like Iraq, how daunting was that? How serious was that? In in you know looking back on your career so far.
1: Yeah, so I ended up. Um, I was on an exchange program in uh, the US, flying F-15 Strike Eagles, which are an amazing aircraft. Um, and uh, while I was there, that was when uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom um, occurred. So uh, I ended up um, as an Australian um, officer embedded in a US squadron, uh, flying the F-15 in um, in Operation Iraqi Freedom. So downtown missions, um, yeah, you know, down yeah uh, you know, over Baghdad and getting shot at and um, you know all sorts of things and. Um, it's one of those things that i'm i'm glad i was a part of it uh you know I'm, I'm not i'm not for uh war you know i'd love nothing more than if we didn't need defense forces around the world but unfortunately there's always people out there that want to take advantage of uh, other people so defense forces are needed and um and that's what i was needed to do at the time uh it, it's it's a life-changing event there's no doubt about that you know to to go and um you know work with a, a coalition force um work with your best mates you know it's yeah, you know, the I guess on a sporting level, the way you could put it is like um, being in the state of origin. You know, you, you know you're going to get. Yeah, you, know, you know, some of your mates are going to get hurt, um, and. Um there's no you're not doing it for um, you're not doing it for any reward personally. You're doing it for the team, and um, and the team was um, the rest of the world at the time saying we've got to we've got to stop this occurring. And um, to to be part of that team is uh, is an amazing feeling. Um, but you know it, it comes with um it, it comes with baggage as well. You know everyone that ends up in combat ends up coming out at some stage having to deal with uh, with what they've been involved in, uh, what they've seen, what they've done, and um and the loss of friends which, you know, I did lose a few friends in that conflict.
0: You were awarded the Air Medal, and Air Medal first Oak Leader for operational services there in Iraq. I want to come back to the Strike Eagle, because you brought that up um, a moment ago. Multi-role fighter jet. You were entrusted with a $31 million piece of equipment. What is it, mate? Correct me if I'm wrong here. Two Pratt & Whitney jet engines, afterburning turbofans, range up to nearly 4,000 k's and capable... Of three thousand k's an hour, Mach two point five. That is mighty.
1: Yeah, the this, the, uh, the eagle. Um, yeah, people ask me if I miss uh, miss uh, the military, and on the flying side, I don't really miss the Hornet because I've um, you know I had enough time in the Hornet to do everything I needed to. But I do miss the uh, the eagle. Um, absolutely amazing plane it's a it's a big aircraft um has a lot of power um you know I've, I saw some amazing things in it a lot of firepower huge amount of firepower and um you know for uh just on the the engine side because I know a lot of people you know like engine engine details um there was one time I was uh, I was running on the deck in an exercise in an F-15 and I was doing about 750 knots at uh, 100 foot off the ground so we're looking at around about you know 1300 kilometres an hour about 100 feet um Um, in the middle of the desert, like near Area 51, and um, my fuel flow at the time was 110,000 pounds of fuel per engine, so 220,000 pounds of fuel an hour going out the back end, so yeah, yeah, do the maths on that.
0: (laughs) That is nuts, that's wild. Let's move to aerobatics, because on the CV is also a a National Advanced uh, Aerobatics Championship, when did that start? What drew you to that? Was it something that always kind of ticked along uh, as you were doing some of the military stuff?
1: Yeah, it sort of. Uh, I dropped out of doing uh, any of the grassroots type flying uh, when I got into the military. I sort of put all of my all of my efforts and all of my um, my thought processes and yeah, you know, basically twenty four seven. I immersed myself in being the best fighter pilot I could be. Um, and it basically came about after I got back from the the combat operations when I was living in America. Um, you know, I had. A little bit of a downer, almost. You go, well, I've just come out of combat. I survived, lost some friends. What? Next. What's next? You know, what do I do? Um, you know, it, surely I haven't just peaked at age thirty. That's the that's the highest point of my life. Well, I'm not saying that you know going in combat is the highest point, but the most, um, you know, the the the, the pinnacle of um, performance mm. uh, is you know in combat really for any um, any defence force person. So. What do I do now to challenge myself? And um, so I bought a, a little aerobatic plane um, in America. What was it? It was called an acro sport, a little um, a little two seat open cockpit uh, biplane, and um, I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to a competition. So I bought this plane. I rocked up to uh, to a competition um, and said, oh, I want to go in the competition. And they're like, okay. Um, <laughs> uh do you know what you're doing I, said, oh, I can do a loop and a roll and then so i did it and they're like oh, that's completely bad you know um you, you didn't do any of the things we're looking for judging and that's when i realized there's a whole set of rules with doing a competition it's um they try and make it as objective as possible even though um even though it is being judged uh, so i I, uh, I brushed up my skills and then won the next competition and went you know what maybe maybe i can actually do this that was kind of fun so i started buying um buying some bigger and better aerobatic planes and that just sort of progressed in parallel on the weekends with my military career.
0: In 2009, you make your debut in the Red Bull Air Race World Mm -hmm. Series as a plane taking off in the background, super timing or landing, I should say. Um, That kind of blended the two things, didn't it? Because it it brought all your aerobatic skills, but the the fast manoeuvring, the racing aspect as well, which clearly appeals to you.
1: Yeah, it was... um you know, uh, the, the head of the, uh, the sport in uh, 2009 after I did my first race, he summed it up and said, this sport was made for me, <laughs> which it really did seem that uh, at the time because... Um, You know, I'd always pushed myself very hard in the military. I was used to pulling a lot of G. I was used to flying high-performance aircraft. Uh, I was used to low-flying at high speeds. Um, I was also used to being able to control my emotions and uh, and stress levels. You know, I'd been in combat, you know, I'd been shot at, um, but I was still able to perform my job. Um, And I I found I was quite good at being able to keep my brain... um, uh, compartmentalized when uh, when the heat was on. Uh, in fact, to the point where I would often be able to uh, perform at my peak level when I'm under immense pressure was actually where I had my best performances. So, being able to take you know really that whole military mindset and the the physical experience of what I'd done in the flying and combine that into um, a, a world performance sport uh, using aircraft uh, seemed a natural fit. And uh, and that's exactly how it went down. You know, I had to do some. To get in I had to do some training, more training, aerobatic training and qualify through aerobatic competitions and I did okay in those aerobatic competitions but where I actually excelled was when I stepped the next level out of the aerobatic competitions and went to racing competitions, uh, that's where I really found, uh, found my stride and it, um, it really did fit like a glove.
0: I'm probably reluctant to ask it. Really, I don't ask it of a lot of racing people, be it bike races or car races. Either scariest moment for you in in that air race competition. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah, it's um, the scariest uh, moment uh, in racing. I have uh, actually uh, hit the surface of the uh, the earth, which is uh, as a as a pilot. It's never something you want to uh, you want to do. Um, it wasn't scary at the time. It was more scary um, straight after it. Uh, you know, I think most. Um, most uh, you know, motorsport guys, and in fact most people in the world, have been in a situation where things have gone horribly wrong very quickly. Uh, some some members of the human race put their hands in the air and freak out. Other people that are you know, generally control freak type personalities, like me, um, when it's going wrong, you don't actually have time to get upset or panic or be scared. You accept your, you accept where you're at, and you think of everything you can do to minimise. Um, uh, the, the bad result which is exactly what happened so uh, I g-stalled in a in a low level turn it rolled the plane on its back um, I realized straight away I was going to crash um, and I was able to get the plane flying again get it rolled back upright so this all happened at about 30 feet I uh, get it rolled back upright I hit both wingtips in the water in the recovery uh, and the landing gear uh, I tore some parts off the plane and bounced uh was able to gather up what was left um during the bounce and stop it hitting the water again uh and then um and then miss the crowd and fly away and uh, that all uh, from the stall until coming back out of the water was 0.6 of a second so it uh, it all happened very quick but once again it's like all professional motorsport people you end up you know, time slows down uh and what seems to have happened in a very slow process uh when you watch it in replay you go "Geez, that happened quick <laughs> In the first qualifying session of race four in Windsor, Ontario, Australian pilot Matt Hall, after a strong
0: early section in the track, stalled his plane to face a dramatic situation. And the final big challenge, level through this blue gate, hard left to the chicane. Oh! Oh! And a skip off the water! What an amazing recovery! Matt Hall! Way, way too low, skimming the oh, wing okay, in the mate. water, but just pulls the plane up in time. Roger, mate.
1: Uh, cleared hole three. Uh, just a little came through the, the uh, gate uh, 13, I believe it is, with too great an angle to the chicane, and then I broke one of my own rules. I actually looked into the turn, which means I don't fly the aircraft naturally. I pulled on it. Um, I've G-stalled the aircraft, uh, which has rolled me slightly past the, uh, the knife edge. Um, I've managed to get it back to wings level and, uh, and recover. I believe I might have skipped twice on the water because I felt two impacts, um, flew it away, and, uh, and then obviously it was all just uh, trying just to get it back on the ground safely. Everyone was okay. Yeah, you know, thank God it was Matt Hall. There's a guy that was pushing hard,
0: stalled the airplane, and he's one of the best pilots on the planet, and that's why he is where he is now, landing back safely at this airport.
1: So the scariest part was afterwards, realising what I'd just been through, and then playing out what's still going to happen. You know, is the plane going to keep flying? Can I, uh, land, it? Can I land it? Am I going to have to bail out? Um, my wife's and my son are down there watching. Um, you know, that was a big factor in my head. You know, they're on the ground watching me at the moment. They've just seen me crash, and no one knows what's going to happen in the next thirty seconds, uh, including me. Um, so it was still a process I was going through, but it was definitely a, the uh, the fear of unknown started to creep in pretty hard at that point. I thought I'd probably lost half of my prop. I thought my prop had been in the water, so I thought the engine was basically cooking itself and it was about to blow up. Um, so I was, I was actually preparing to bail out um, straight away and... Um, I gave it like thirty seconds. Okay, I'm, I've got the engine in control. Then I got um, Nigel Lamb, one of the other competitors, and uh, up against me, and the helicopter. And they had a look around. And said, "You know, you're missing some landing gear components. Uh, your gear might come off." So then it's like, okay, I think I'm going to be able to fly the plane, but it's probably going to it's probably going to end up on its belly when I land, which can you know can break your back basically on these planes if it uh, if the gear comes off on landing. So you know, it was one of those things. You, know, you keep you keep going through it. Um, I wouldn't say my heart rate really um, got up. I was more disappointed in myself for, for being for allowing myself to end up in that situation. Um, yeah, my heart rate didn't get up until really after I landed, and then it then it hit home. It was like, okay, I'm I'm unharmed. The plane's damaged and my career is a mess <laughs> and then my wife turned up and it's like uh-oh <laughs> how was she she was really good actually she's um, you know she's uh, she was oh she's ex-military as well she was a um, a flight surgeon in the military and actually responsible for crash investigations so she gets it you know she realizes that we're uh, we're not doing normal aviation we're, we're in a motorsport and motorsport involves taking um calculated risks you know you don't try and crash your plane you don't try and crash your car when you're racing um but um it's not that like you just driving down the road you know it's it's not like i'm taking the family for a fly when i'm in a racetrack we we are flying with a lot of safety equipment based on the fact that the chances of a crash are much higher than normal aviation so uh, she gets that um she also understood that we needed to uh, dig down and find out what went wrong rather than just shrugging our shoulders and saying i hope that doesn't happen again so um you know someone less understanding would have said that's it no more uh, whereas she said well obviously something went wrong let's find out what it was and fix it so Getting back on the horse, because you are the kind of person who is of that military background,
0: and you compartmentalise. Did that process happen fairly simply? You ticked all the boxes in
1: terms of understanding what went wrong, knowing that you could prevent it from happening again, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and, and move on. Yeah, very much so. It's um, yeah, it was definitely a process. Uh, I had to make an initial decision, um, and that was um, that was the hardest decision to make. That I had to go and uh, look at myself in the uh, in the in the mirror and. Um, Straight after it happened, and and like really, they say you know, looking in the hall of mirrors. I actually had to look at myself in the mirror and challenge myself because my initial instinct was embarrassment. It's like I want to go and hide from all this and run, want to run away and say you know that was really embarrassing and I'm lucky to have survived and everything.
0: Because you're a perfectionist.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because I'm a perfectionist and I hate making errors. Um, so I had to stare myself down and challenge myself. That's like uh, you know the the rest of my life. Will be based around the decision I'm going to make in the next thirty seconds. So, I went: Are you going to run away and hide, or are you going to take this, learn from it, improve not only my system but improve the safety of the air race and everybody by coming up with what went wrong and implementing it? And uh, yeah, it was it was a challenge because straight after it, you just want to go and crawl into bed and suck your thumb, you know. So I pushed myself, and then after we made that decision, uh, then it was um, yeah, right down a write down a process of what we're going to go through what we're going to analyze uh, and, and how deep we're going to dig because you can always dig deeper and at some point you've got to go right there is the there is the root evil of what happened and that's that's the core of what we've got to fix um, and in, in the end we found three cores we had to fix um, and once we fixed them it was very very easy to get back on the horse because you go right they're the three problems we had and we fixed them let's go This
0: is Greg Rust and you're listening to Rusty's Garage, more with Matt Hall in a moment. In this series, I speak to some of the most passionate riders, drivers, designers and collectors I know, like Mark Scaife, the legendary Australian touring car racer, Supercars Hall of Famer and Bathurst Great, who opens up on some of the heavy financial burden he experienced during a tumultuous period as a team owner. The demands around shortening my driving career were consequential to, to all of those external business demands around being able to write enough sponsorship and being able to operate you know, a, a high-level team bloody hard. Listen to the full episode with Mark Scaife here on Rusty's Garage. That'll buff right out. An ironic comment made about a person's vehicle that has suffered irreparable damage, suggesting it can be fixed when it clearly can't. Hilarious to those around them, not so funny for the owner of the destroyed vehicle. Air Race is a tremendous series because you go to some spectacular locations around the world. You bring flying to the people above harbours and, and iconic locations, racing among the, the pylons, and there's a real art to that that blends your skills um, but also lots of great motor racing things I mean these these are finely
1: tuned machines aren't they yeah very much so like yeah you know, the air race started um, yeah you know, in you know 2003 I think the first air race was um, in, in you know, italics which was just uh, a couple of um, a couple of guys with their stock aerobatic planes going hey let's let's race around That's some nice. pylons <laughs> yeah just having fun in a paddock and then it grew from there um, it's like I guess v8 supercars where we have to base our race aircraft off a production plane and the production plane i'm using is a is a Zivco edge at the moment the the original Zivco edge if you buy it from the factory um for example performance wise it'll do maybe 180 knots straight and level uh whereas ours will do um 235 knots straight and level so it's really pushing things up uh, another notch um everything every single thing on the aircraft is there for a purpose of racing um so um so uh, we no longer have things that are there for aerobatics um yeah so in aerobatics you want to you know nice canopy so you can see where you are and keep your orientation whereas in racing we don't want any extra weight or uh, profile so everything is cut down so we can hardly see anything when we're in these race planes Um, all we we want to be able to see is the pylon out the front so taking off and landing and that sort of stuff actually is quite a challenge in these planes because you can't see anything um you know every single gram of weight we put into the aircraft is uh, assessed is it valuable or, or is it not is it you know is it going to help us go faster or do we throw it out so uh, and, and that actually includes myself as well that you know any weight i put on is like what are you doing and why are you doing it um and sometimes that's just that's um yeah, it's it's soul destroying when you when you go out and you see oh, your mates having a beer and you're sitting there going, oh, I got a race coming up and I got to lose uh, 300 grams.
0: <laughs> the planes, I mean, you talk about the chase for weight there before. I mean, even things like like uh, decals or paint schemes and things like that, you, you absolutely try to keep the
1: weight down, even with things like that. Yeah, for sure, because um, you know it's it's not just the overall weight of the aircraft; it's how the weight's distributed as well. So once again, just like any uh, high-performance um, um, piece of machine um yeah there's the there's the total package weight that then is related to traction and power of how fast you can accelerate and how how fast you can corner um but on top of that is is just as critical is the balance, um, because um, the plane is just like um, you know, the cars, that if uh, there's too much weight down the back, uh, it'll pitch too fast, and um, you can over or stall. Uh, if the weight's too far up the front, you've got to use too much force to get the plane to turn, which is drag, um, and it won't corner as well. So um, you know, we've just gone through a, a branding change uh, over the break, and, um, and the plane is not only heavy but the weight distribution is poor uh and it's got a very heavy back end which means that so you can feel that you weren't as comfortable as normal because of that you know? oh yeah for sure so um you yeah, know um we actually had two over g's in training and one in, one, one over g in training one over g in quali um because uh if you think about it, if the weight is at the back end of the plane as you start to pitch the weight wants to keep going and actually makes the plane pitch harder than you're prepared to pitch and, and um it, it, it uh, spikes the g and um yeah we were getting uh, unheard of um Uh, acceleration rates uh which is you know 40 g per second and we're limited to um to 12 g and at 40 g per second that's 1 g added every 25 milliseconds so um yeah you've uh, so you know i try and go to 11 um, but with the weight distribution i got to 12 a few times accidentally uh, because the uh, the pitch rates were so high
0: okay tell people that don't know
1: about the edge uh, some more data particularly in relation to engine and things like that Okay, yeah, so uh, basically we're running normally aspirated engines. It's a standardised engine we use in the race, um, mainly for safety but also for budget constraints. So, you know, we we used to be able to do whatever we wanted to the engines. Then we were, some people were having... He engines. says with a smile. Yeah, and I did quite a bit. And uh, there were a few engine failures from some other teams because they were pushing them so hard, you know, pushing them like race, uh, race stuff that, you know, we're only going to get, you know, two or three um, races out of this and we're going to throw it away. And uh, that puts the budget through the roof, but it also puts... Um, the the safety um, at risk as well, because unlike, uh, once again, track racing, if we lose the donk uh, in the plane, it's, um, it's a bigger issue than just pulling over on the side of the track. Oh, by the way, a donk is slang for an engine. It's not a term you often hear these days, but when Matt's chatting about it, he's referring to the engine up front in the plane. Um, so uh, the engines are standardised, normally aspirated, uh, 540 cubic inches, so that's about eight and a half litres from memory. Um, they're, they're old school technology, these engines. They're, um, yeah, so eight and a half uh, litres, but they're only six cylinders. Um, they're just your classic horizontally opposed um, engines. So, you know, basically VW style engine just with six pots, but they're big pots. Uh, it's a very high torque engine, um, so we run quite low RPM, so... Yeah, exactly what we run we won't get into but it's somewhere around 2950 rpm to so 2950 um which doesn't seem that high but we're, we're pushing up around 350 horsepower on very low rpm um and that's that's limited as well by the rules and the regs um of what we're allowed to do to keep it to keep it all safe um it's just normal uh, normal aviation fuel we're not allowed to put additives in uh, in the oil or anything uh what we can do though is we can um we can work fairly hard on cooling systems, which we spend a lot of time working on cooling systems because, um, once again, like most people know that are fine tuning motorsports is that um, cooling is critical for the engine for getting the optimum power, but it's also critical for the um, the total package for drag. That if you can reduce um, the amount of effort you're putting into cooling the aircraft with with robbing uh, external air, which you have to decelerate, cool the engine, then reaccelerate, um, you can go faster uh, in straight lines not doing that. So we spend a huge amount of effort into both um, the cooling of the aircraft and also the induction um, into the engine itself. Um, and we're currently looking at you know, all of the normal race stuff of uh, harmonics, um, um, you know, looking at uh, volumetric uh, areas in plenums uh, leading into the uh, into the fuel servers. So uh, all the stuff, uh, you know, I'm lucky I've got uh, a Formula 1 um, expert in my team now who's who's um, mapping the engine and all the harmonics in the engine and we're we're actually getting more power out of the engine just by changing the design of the intake. How big's the team? I mean, you have, uh, as
0: you and I talk here, you've just come back from finishing fifth at the opening round I think it was and the next is a few weeks away because the, the Winter Olympics on in between time, they're off to Cannes next I, I think um, but the plane stays in Europe while you're back here in Australia doesn't
1: it? Yeah that's that's right, so the plane uh, the plane stays in Europe we're actually getting some work done to try and uh, uh, balance some of those items we're talking about with the aerodynamics, um, the team is uh, currently uh, back home again, um, we've got um, an all Australian team at the moment so it's only four of us that are that are on the road, uh, being me and myself as yeah, I go there as the boss I then um, delegate myself uh, down to being the pilot uh, so I don't have to concentrate on being the boss and the pilot at the same time. Uh, and then I come home back as the boss again. <laughs> um, then we've got um, my technician who's um, yeah, responsible for obviously the, primarily, the first of all, the safety of the aircraft, but then also for uh, you know uh, doing whatever we can to make it faster. Um, I've got my race tactician who's uh, responsible for making sure all of our, tele- our onboard telemetry is working. Then he analyses all of our telemetry and puts forward recommendations to me about what I can do differently in the track both on oh, like the line Formula 1. Exactly and uh, we've got our you know, he sits there with data traces and you know, six, 64 channels at 100 hertz of information that he analyzes uh, with all of our GPS plots and then he'll he'll debrief me after every flight. Um, you know, I'll give you my gut feel just once again like Formula 1 I'll debrief with him and say this is what I thought, this is what I felt and then he'll analyze the data and go you're right here, you're wrong here and we're going to do this uh, differently um, and then I've got a team manager who's running around keeping us all in control so it's actually quite a small team at the race, and the reason for that is we don't do um, we don't do high speed pit changes or anything like that. So um, yeah, we don't we don't come running in and do a two second tire change. Mm-hmm. We come in and we take our time to get the plane turned around. But we've got a lot more people in the background. We've got yeah you know, a um, an aerodynamic design team. We've got a um, uh, in Germany. We've got um, some more um, data analysis in Melbourne that uh, that help us out. Uh, and then I've got the, the physical team around me as well. So um, yeah, I've got my own personal trainer, sports psychologist, um, and. And then all of the, the back uh, crackers and the uh, and the physios and all that sort of stuff uh, because we do, you know, we put our bodies under a lot there um, and, uh, you know, I need that whole team around me. So when I get home, uh, I'm generally all twisted and screwed up and, and it's a, a process for about a week to straighten me up again.
0: The record books show top two results in the world championship in 2015 and 16 if my memory serves me correctly there i mean it is literally the best uh aerobatic race pilots in the world all coming together the competition is incredibly tough mate isn't it
1: yeah it's um it's very very tight racing um yeah, we uh, you know, we, we talk about um, we don't we no longer talk about how many seconds. You know, a race would be somewhere you know the average race is somewhere between probably 55 seconds and a, and maybe a minute and two or something like that. Uh, all the tracks are different around the world, but that's roughly how they go. Uh, we no longer talk about seconds. How many seconds did you run on the track? So you won't go. I ran a 55. Yeah, point three, you'll say I ran a 0.532, and someone goes, oh, "I ran a 0.461." Then you get, "Jeez, you know." And and then that, um, you know, you start talking you know, bigger decimal places, and it seems like you're way off the pace. You know, in the end, you go, "Man, I was I was still like you know, 153 thousandths of a second behind him." It's like 153. Where are we going to find 153 thousandths of a second? When you look at it, the big pitch, you go, "I can't even start and stop my watch in that much time." You know, we're talking it, we're talking a meter or two in the track, um, but that's how tight the racing is because every Body is um you know super capable. And yeah, you know, it's one of those things you've sometimes got to slap yourself around around when you you come back from a race, and, you know, I come back in fifth place in this last one, and you you come back and you're kicking the can, going, you yeah, know, bloody hell, I came fifth. You know, I need to do better than that. And you've got to sit back and go, I came fifth um by less than two uh, two-tenths of a second, and I was racing against um all the top guys in the world with highly modified planes, and you go. It's actually pretty good. I was just being involved, let alone uh, coming fifth. <laughs> what I am finding is, um, yeah, you know, the, the the body clock is ticking. Um, it's getting harder uh, every year to um, you know to, to strap the plane on. Uh, I still think I've got a number of years left in me. Um, you know, it's a matter of uh, care and feeding my body. But um, where we've got a number of years of just concentrating on me and the team being world champion a number of times. But in the background, we are uh, already looking at um, the, the evolution of the sport. So uh, up until about now, um, the sport's always been the, you know, the Red Bull Air Race gets to pick and choose who comes into the sport. You know, I applied, but they chose, said, yes, you can. Um, and then I ran the team and I owned the team. Uh, the evolution that's starting to occur now is that, um, like any motorsport evolves, is that the team is now established. So rather than a new pilot creating a new team we will actually pick at the pilot who's going to replace me and we'll maintain the team uh, which is a win-win for everybody so a pilot can just walk in and he's Primary job, his only job in the world is to go fast in that plane. Um, whereas I've, you know, I have to deal with also running the business and that sort of stuff when I do it. So it's a great um, next level for the person that does replace me, and yeah, uh, you know, I'm excited to be involved in a in a motorsport that's, um, you know, I'm at the ground floor and it's and it's growing like you wouldn't believe, especially uh, overseas. And uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a very privileged place to be, not only uh, one of the ranked competitors in this growing sport, but also in a position that um, you know I can see myself being involved in this sport as long as I want, regardless of um, my physical ability to get in the cockpit. Let's talk before I wrap this
0: up about... I often ask guests about what's in their garage, either what their dream machine is, what they're restoring, perhaps, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Let's talk about a couple of cool things that you've flown along the way. Am I right in saying that you've flown a Mustang? What was that thing like?
1: Yeah, I've, uh, I've flown a Mustang. In fact, it's in my stable. I've uh, I, I own a part share in that one, Ooh, and it's cool. um, it's a it's an amazing plane. Um, yeah, huge amount of power, huge amount of noise. Um, Iconic too. Oh uh, yeah. So it's ours is a two seat. So you know, we sometimes take people flying, and um, and you know, you quite often. You know, as you're as you're getting out of the, the plane, you'll have grown grown uh, men and ladies uh, in the back tearing up and you're like, you know, it's like, oh, now I know what my granddad did. And, you know, it's just, it's such a raw uh, feeling of power. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that uh, e- even when I land it, you can't believe that this was handed over to 18 and 19 year olds to go out and get shot at. You know, it's already hard enough to fly these things well, um, just concentrating purely on flying it well, uh, let alone flying it well and getting shot at. Um, and you're, you know, freezing your, freezing your butt off at 30 uh, odd thousand feet. So, amazing plane you had 27 liters of uh, 27 liter engine v12 um yeah 1600 horsepower and um stub stacks uh flames come out of the exhaust when you're running this thing it's just so cool as a as a motorhead it is the most amazing thing
0: are there any other resto projects currently in the hangar underway or if budget was unlimited what would you love to have in there
1: I, I like all the, uh, ends of the spectrum, so um, we've got a, um, a, a Piper Cub in uh, the hangar getting restored at the moment, which is you know basically uh, you know an old rag and uh, tube aircraft used as a trainer during um, you know, in the 40s, um, and it's a, just a fun plane to fly around in. Um, I've always got my eye on um, on other aircraft. I think we've got about six or seven planes at the moment, and but I've, I've uh, the boss has stepped in and said that uh, I can't uh, I can't buy any more planes until I've got all the ones I've got flying, uh, which is <laughs> (laughs) quite a challenge because I keep seeing all these really cool projects and go, oh, maybe she won't notice if I, I just slipped that one into the hangar, but she's the bookkeeper. So I think she'll notice. She'll
0: notice. (laughs) notice. Is it true you've only ever done one parachute jump and why is that? Do you think they're mad? That's not something you want to pursue?
1: Yeah, that is true. I've only done one jump. Um, It was back in the nineties. I did it and I went, yeah, that was kind of cool, but um, why would you ever not want to land the plane as well? So, uh, so I'm now business partners with a skydiving uh, uh, company. And I watch them, how much fun they all have. And every now and then I look at it and go, maybe I need to give it another crack. But um, yeah, I like landing planes. <laughs> that is cool. Yep, this is uh, this is kind of like where I come to hang out and uh, get all excited, but also shake my head. <laughs>
0: just walked out into the hangar you can hear a robinson helicopter i think it is taking off in the in the background so first of all three aircraft that we're looking at in here at the moment in the red bull cola colors is your now retired race craft because you have a new edge that we've we've spoken about tell us about this firstly
1: yeah so this one i uh, started racing in 2010 this is actually the one that i um, i touched the water with so uh, me and her go way back, and we've had some good experience, good and bad experiences together. Uh, it's also the plane that's um, that I've finished number two in the world twice in. So so uh, this is my little baby, and uh, we retired her because um, she had a, a problem with the wing uh, at the end of one of the seasons, and we, we thought rather than trying to rapidly fix the wing, um, we're better off to... Buy a brand new race plane and um, and take our time to 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 make sure everything's fine with it because it's yeah you know, once again like uh you know it's slightly different to any other motorsport that if something goes wrong in the track um yeah you know, it, it could go horribly wrong real quick so it, safety is paramount there wasn't we weren't quite sure how bad the problem was so we bought a new race plane it turns out it's all fixed again now and she's fine so um, she's really now just a, a demonstration aircraft. Um, which is she's pretty impressive demonstration. Very impressive. So we're talking edge here, aren't we? This yeah. one here is an MXS. Um, yep. So it's the it's the other type of race plane that's used out there, and um, this one, yeah. Ultimately, they're they're all about the same. Um, this has got a slightly different construction method, and um, but they're they're effectively the same sort of plane. Okay. What about over to the right-hand side? Blue
0: and yellow, Matt Hall Racing colours. Um, extra is that right that's
1: exactly right so yeah this is our two seat extra it's my family model it um it carries an extra bum and um (laughs) this is what we do all of our uh, media and uh, all of our joy flights and all that sort of stuff in so um it's got the same engine and prop setup as the race plane basically so still uh very very uh maneuverable and very fast um uh but it it just happens to weigh a bit more and uh when you look at it you can see that it's uh yeah, while it still looks very fast and sleek when you look at it and the race plane, you go, well, you can see which one's going to go faster. But uh, fun plane, and, uh, yeah, that's the... That's the um, basically, this is the home-based business of uh, you know, where people can come for a run with us. Single-engine prop up front. What's the power plant like? Tell us more. Yeah, so this is a 300-horse, so uh, very similar to the, um, to the uh, race plane. We only run this at 2,700 RPM, um, but it, uh, it's, it's pulling 300 horsepower, but the plane only weighs uh, about 650 kilos empty. So, so uh, power-to-weight ratio is actually pretty damn good with 300 horsepower. You know, you know, it's, it's very similar power-to-weight ratio as a V8 supercar. And in fact, uh, you know, some people, if they've been to uh, you know, uh, events around Australia, they've probably seen us either demoing the plane at uh, the supercar races, and I've also uh, raced um, Jamie Wincup uh, as well at a, on a drag, like on takeoff, um, with these planes, and uh, we're neck-and-neck neck all the way down the straight. Um, he then has to brake for the corner, and I don't.
0: <laughs> now, in the corner... Uh, being restored you mentioned your lovely wife the bookkeeper she probably wanted you to finish this project
1: what is it what are we looking at and how far before it'll be completed um so yeah this is a super cub um it's actually my wife she's not a pilot but i bought it for her that's how i got away with it <laughs> <laughs> so she couldn't say no when i bought her a nice present um and uh so we're just in a process of restoring it back to brand new condition uh it's actually it, it's not that far off um being finished, it's really just needs uh, a couple of uh, coats of paint here and there. Uh, we've got a new engine sitting in the in the box. We've got a new props sitting on the shelf. Uh, we've got new uh, instruments sitting uh, on the shelf as well. So we're we're now just at a matter of uh, bolting everything back together. And um, it's like everything in life, though, uh, time gets in the way. Um, so. Uh, we've got a we've got a plane that's ready to go. Uh, it's just a matter of having um, having time and everything. Every time we think we've got time, something pops up, and the priority is always racing. So it, uh, that that always ends up in the back of the corner. In fact, it's been living there now for two years. <laughs> What's the age and the history on it? Things like that. Well, this one here is actually fairly new uh, as far as um, of, of these is concerned. So the design is uh, back in the nineteen forties. Um, uh, a big training type of aircraft. It's probably the most popular designed aircraft in the world the uh the piper cub this one's called a super cub and uh it it uh it started being produced in about the 60s and um and what they call it super because they've just put more power in it and um (laughs) you see you see these types of planes a lot in um in a lot of uh youtube videos get passed around uh, from alaskan bush pilots where they're doing these insanely uh short takeoff and landings you know these these types of planes can take off and land in yeah. um five meters um and they they land them on uh on um, uh riverbeds and they actually they water ski them they put them down on, on water and uh, run them along the water because the tires are so big they're they're like water skis so they're fun planes to fly and you fly around with the door open um you know, you can land them anywhere you don't need a runway uh, just a huge amount of fun um and uh, they're great for teaching people to fly as well so my son will probably learn to fly in this plane how old is he he's now 12 um he, uh, he got a bit too cool for flying for a little while there, but now he's starting to look at it and go, it actually is, uh, flying is actually pretty cool. <laughs> so he's starting to he's starting to come flying with me again.
0: Final question for you. Are you a big fan of the of the history of, of flying? I mean, I, I spent, um, in the last 12 months, I went to Washington and went to the Smithsonian there, which is dedicated to, to flying and space travel and things like that. I mean, it's just amazing. An original Wright Brothers plane in there, Um that sort of stuff's hugely I,
1: I sense in you you love all of that yeah for sure you know it's um yeah when, when you're growing up you're always you're always looking back in history and everything that happened before you're born seems like it was so long ago yeah um, and so obviously, you know, I've looked at uh, you know when I was growing up, aviation's has always been around. I, I always knew that the first flight was the seventeenth of December, nineteen oh three. But that was so long ago; it's not funny. Mm-hmm. And then um, I went to the centenary of that in um, in the U.S. when I was living there, and uh, they reenacted the first flight. And um, and now, as it turns out, you know, I've been I've been alive for um, you know, yeah, approaching half of the history of aviation. And and you go, wow, that's. Um and that's it's actually a very young uh, activity still to be involved in, and in the development of it. And uh, yeah, I look at uh, I look at what people have done in the past, and you know all the the, the test pilots who broke the sound barrier, and you go to the Smithsonian and you read all their stories, and then you go down to Cape Canaveral and go through um, you know uh, all the uh, who's got all the rockets and what they've been doing, and you know, you know how hard they've pushed themselves. And yeah, it's just it's just unbelievable what uh, what humans have done in aviation in such a short time. And uh, yeah, yeah, it still blows me away every time I read a story worry about it
0: on the next episode of Rusty's Garage we speak to Australian Motorsport Hall of Famer Tim Schenken who took a chance and hopped on a boat in the 1960s to England to hopefully become a Formula One driver uh, but we got all the way to the truck into the truck Peter Shetty there he was in a hell of a state because Enzo Ferrari had come up the night before to meet me and had to stay overnight You brushed Enzo Ferrari? (laughs) Well, I didn't know I'd brushed him off uh, until that moment. Um, And uh, so still with my overalls on, they took me immediately to a village uh, just near uh, Monza and into the dining room there in the back corner was Enzo Ferrari. So with an interpreter, I did my deal there. So they probably thought I was super cool, but frankly, I uh, I thought I was being tricked. Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.